Karen was telling me this last week that she had a conversation with a woman. Uh, this woman wasn't a believer, but she had a close friend who knew the Lord, and she had noticed something very different about her life, her friend's life. And then through a, a group that she was uh, involved in, she met another woman who had this same difference, and she found out that this woman was a believer. And she started to arrive at the conclusion that the difference in these people was Jesus Christ. And in talking to my friend, she saw the same difference in her. And it came about that she really wanted that in herself. She really wanted to become a Christian. So after a considerable clarification and discussion, she prayed to receive Christ. This was just last Tuesday. Well, last Thursday, when they were going to get together again, uh, she called up and said, Hey, I've been thinking about it. And I no longer want to be a Christian. I just don't think it's right for me. You know, how sad. I, you know, I really feel badly for this woman. And I, I feel badly for my friend. Because it's a, really a treat to lead someone to the Lord. It uh, doesn't happen every day. It would be neat if it did. But when it does happen, it's really a delight. It's really fun. And so it's, it's a disappointment when something like this happens. This just happened this last week. So I'd like to stop before I get very far into what I'm going to say this morning and pray for this woman and pray for my friend just that God would turn the situation around. So let's just take a minute and pray. Lord, I do pray for this woman that she would reconsider, that she would look at what you have to offer, but she would also look at who you are and what the, the allegiance that you actually deserve pray that she would uh, trust you and put aside her fears and the things that she doesn't understand. And I pray for Betty as she deals with this disappointment, that she would not be discouraged, but that she would know that you have used her in the life of another person to love this person, that she's planted seeds that your spirit can water, that she was faithful, and that... uh, The evil one has just snatched the seed away. I pray that you would uh, remove the seed from the beak of the evil one and give it back. We just bring this to you in your son's name. Amen. The reason I wanted to bring that up is because the interesting thing about this tragedy is the reason the woman had for rejecting Christ. It was not because there was insufficient evidence. She had seen enough evidence to convince her that Christ was who he claimed to be, that Christianity was the truth. The problem was her her parents had both died without Christ. And she did not want to think that they might not be in heaven. And her husband is not a believer, and she did not want to think that he might go to hell. And so her decision was not based on evidence. It was based on her discomfort with the conclusion that the evidence brought her to. And because she was unwilling to accept that conclusion, she rejected it all. She threw out the evidence and she rejected Jesus Christ. One of the books in my library I keep around from my college days is an anthology on political theory. That's what I studied in my undergraduate work. Um, And there is one man whose writings I found particularly troublesome. The guy's name is 
George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel. I was looking back over my notes in the margins of one of his writings, and there's all these angry comments and exclamations and disagreements. And down at the bottom I'd written, this is a very dangerous man. You see, the philosophies of Hegel spawned both Nazi fascism and Marxist communism, the two most horrible and destructive political philosophies that have ever been unleashed on humanity. Brian Fisher was telling me an anecdote from Hegel's life. Hegel was presenting a series of lectures on his philosophy of history. And one of the students objected. He said, Professor Hegel, this theory just does not fit the facts. And Hegel's telling response was, so much the worse for the facts. Now, this is the way people are. This is the way we are. We choose what evidence we're going to look at, what evidence we're even going to consider. And if it leads to a conclusion we don't like, we don't even think about it. We throw it out. I'm convinced that no one rejects Jesus Christ on the evidence. That if they are not a believer, either all the evidence or enough evidence is not available yet to them, which is why we have missions, to get the evidence into people's hands so they can consider it, or... Secondly, as is the case with all English-speaking Americans, they've chosen to ignore it, to disregard the evidence, to pay no attention, not even think about it, not even consider it. Well, this is the way it's always been. Turn to John 10. For those of you who are new here or have been gone for a while, we've been working through the uh, Gospel of John this summer. Last week, Ron uh, taught us from the first half of chapter 10. So today we'll pick up in about verse 22. It's actually been three months elapsed since when Ron taught in verse 21 and where we're picking up in verse 22. In other words, between verse 21, which takes place at the, uh, around the, the Feast of Booths, which was early in October, and verse 22, which takes place at the Feast of Dedication, what we know as Hanukkah, right around Christmas time. There's three months. In these three months, a lot happened. Luke tells us that this is when Jesus sent out the 70. And he did a lot of miracles. A lot of things happened during this time. But John just skips right over it because he wants to put these two events right back to back. Because he wants to demonstrate something. He wants to make a point. What he wants to demonstrate is how clear the evidence is for who Jesus Christ is. Yet how most people just threw the facts out and ignored the evidence. Let me just read the first couple of verses. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. John, who was there and uh, to see and hear these things, reminds us that it was, it was winter. And so Jesus was walking in the, in the covered porch that ran along the eastern side of the temple grounds. These, uh, this porch was supported by huge, magnificent uh, pillars, almost 40 feet high. And there was a roof connected to the pillars that ran along the eastern wall of the temple grounds. And Jesus is walking along, keeping out of the rain. And John says, the Jews came and literally surrounded him. They encircled him, wouldn't let him go. And they demanded a statement. You see, they had been divided among themselves. Had Jesus actually incriminated himself? And they were arguing among themselves whether Jesus had actually said enough 
to get him in trouble. And so they wanted to clear up this confusion so they could, in a a united way, get rid of this problem, get rid of Jesus. Verse uh, 24, The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you're not of my sheep. You know, at first glance, this uh, request seems reasonable. Hey, if you're the Christ, just tell us. But remember, this is not a request, this is a demand. When Jesus was asked the same question on two other occasions, by sincere people, by the woman at the well, and by the, the man who was born blind, his answer was very simple, straightforward. He said, yes, I who speak to you am he. he. He left no doubts about it. But to these people who were demanding that he submit to their authority and respond to their demands, Jesus says, hey, I've already told you. You just don't believe what I've said. You're ignoring it. Jesus will not submit to their assumed authority. He won't do this any more than than the Father agrees to submit to man's petty demands that he prove his existence in a laboratory. You know, we keep trying to make God play our games by our rules. And he just won't do it. This is his world, his creation. He gets to set the rules. And if we've got a problem with that, it is really our problem. Anyway, Jesus says, Hey, I told you. I was clear, yet you don't believe. Just back in chapter 5, Jesus had been referring to God as his Father repeatedly. He had been saying that all of Scripture was about him. He had been describing the messianic prerogatives assigned to him by his Father. And these guys figured out exactly what he was talking about. It was not confusing to them. They knew he was claiming to be the Messiah. They knew he was claiming to be equal with God. So they picked up rocks and tried to stone him. There was no confusion in their mind. You don't stone somebody for a possibility. They knew what he was saying. And then in the next chapter, chapter 6, he claims to be the special one sent down from the Father on whom everyone must believe to receive life. And again, they knew exactly what he was saying. The clear implication was that he was the Messiah. And they got mad again, and they grumbled, and they plotted. The next chapter, chapter 7, they tried to arrest him because he was convincing people that he was the Messiah. You see, the common people weren't having the same problem these guys were. They were listening. It was making sense. So they believed it. But these guys refused to believe it. And so they wanted to arrest him because the the common people were beginning to believe he was the Messiah. Then chapter 8, after a long discourse, again with these same people. These guys are around. They're hearing it. He's talking to them. He refers to himself as the I Am, who was before Abraham. And again, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They picked up rocks and were going to stone him. Because he had claimed to be the Messiah. He had claimed to be God's equal. And they couldn't stand that. So they were going to stone him. Then finally, in this uh, chapter 10, the, the passage that Ron looked at last week, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. Right? That is clearly a messianic allusion. One of the most well-known messianic prophecies is Ezekiel 34. And there God says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them himself. 
and be their shepherd. That that was one of the, the, the strongest clues in the Old Testament to who the Messiah would be. And he said, I am the good shepherd. I'm the guy. Again, it was clear. It was obvious to anyone who would hear Jesus had left no doubt about who he was. You know, if Jesus had not been more insightful and understood the way people are, that their problem was not that they were just stupid. If he thought that was the problem, he would have been frustrated to death. He would have been saying, how can I make it plain to you guys? You know, it's like I ask you, who's buried in Grant's tomb? And you kind of go, I don't know. He would have been pulling his hair out, but he knew that the problem wasn't they were so stupid. The problem was that they were unwilling to reach a conclusion. And because they were unwilling to reach a conclusion, they threw out the evidence. And they said, okay, give us more evidence. Jesus says, why? I've given you all you need, and you just throw it out. You ignore it. You pay no attention to it. He says also, if you would look at the things that I've been doing in my Father's name, you would see more clear evidence that I am who I say I am. You'll see who I am. Just look at what I've done. You know, Jesus is dropping huge clues. My daughters, uh, on their birthdays, always want to have a treasure hunt. We always hide their presents someplace and then, then make clues. And I always use real subtle clues, like look under the thing you sleep on with the mattress and the pillows and the blankets. You know, and Jesus' clues are just about this subtle. Everything he has done in his whole life points to the fact that he is the Messiah. Everything about his life was prefigured in the Old Testament. It was prophesied. I mean, every detail of his birth was right there. His, his trip to Egypt, his moving up to Nazareth, you know, everything, even, even the death that he kept talking about that was going to happen, it was all described in the Old Testament. And the way Jesus did things, did his miracles, was intended to get a clear point across. Remember when, when John the Baptist's um, disciples came from John, they said, hey, are you the, the one that we are to expect, or should we wait around for another? And Jesus turned to them and he said, Go back and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are healed. The dead are raised up. And the gospel is preached to the poor. Look at what I'm doing. These are direct quotes from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. You know, well-known messianic prophecies. So he tells, that's the way he tells John who he is. Because it's so abundantly clear. Just in chapter 9, he healed the man born blind. The blind will receive sight. It's real simple. The blind are receiving sight by this man. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And again, it was clear. But these guys just would not receive it. They would not understand it. Where else would Jesus get the ability to heal like this? Where else would he get the ability to command the weather like he did on the boat? Or to multiply matter like he did when he fed the 5,000? Or to defy gravity when he walked on the water? Where else would that ability come from? Or where else would the authority come from to cast out demons and to raise the dead? Where else is it going to come from? There's no logical alternative. Everything he does demonstrates even the character and the personality of his father. The way he does these things shows compassion, sensitivity. You know, last uh, two weeks ago, 
the man born blind. Again, after the, the, the Jewish leaders throw the guy out of the, the synagogue because Jesus healed him, Jesus seeks him out. And he comforts him and he affirms him because he cares about that person, that individual. Not just to make a point, but he cares about that individual. He shows compassion. One of my favorite stories of Jesus is in Mark 7. It's a very short story, but it's about him healing a deaf man. And when he does this, the deaf man comes to him and there's a crowd around. And Jesus takes him away from the crowd. Because crowds are very disorienting to a deaf person. They don't know who is communicating. They don't know who to look at because they can't hear. So Jesus takes him away from the crowd. And through a real crude sign language, he tells him what he's going to do to put the man at ease, to comfort him before he goes ahead and heals him. And you just see such sensitivity, such compassion, such loving kindness, just like his father. It's clear. C.S. Lewis notices that the same family resemblance. He says in a short essay he wrote on miracles, he says, God creates the vine and teaches it to drop water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into a juice that will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus, every year since Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. But when Christ at Cana turns water into wine... The mask is off. He was doing exactly what he saw his father doing. The same is true of the feeding of the 5,000. Bread is not made there of nothing. Bread is not made of stones, as the devil once suggested to our Lord in vain. A little bread is made into much bread, just as a little wheat is made into much wheat. The son will do nothing but what he sees the father do. There is, so to speak, a family style. Lewis concludes uh, that uh, the miracles of Jesus prove that nature was not being invaded by some alien power, but by that same power which had made nature and rules her every day. With all this evidence, with all of of this so clear, how could these guys not have understood? Again, it wasn't because they were dumb. They were smart. But Jesus clarifies, he says, You do not believe me because you are not my sheep. You don't believe me because you don't trust me. You want to stay in control. You want to be your own shepherd. And so you throw out the facts. You don't believe because you're unwilling to become my sheep. You're unwilling to submit to God or his shepherd. And if you were to face the facts you'd be forced to the conclusion that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah. And if you came to that conclusion, you'd have to follow me. And that's a conclusion you cannot accept. So much the worse for facts. I had a roommate in uh, college that had to deal with this. He uh, was not a believer. In fact, he used to hassle me and tease me all the time about my Christian lifestyle. He accused me of waking him up every morning, slapping my Bible pages. But one evening he came in, and and almost in tears, he said, I really want to believe. I really do. But I can't. Because I don't want to give up my partying. I don't want to do what it's going to require. And again, did you notice? It wasn't because he wasn't convinced it was true. He was convinced. But it led to a conclusion that he did not want to accept. 
So he, he threw it all out. He refused to analyze, refused to consider, refused to think it through. He refused to become a sheep. Jesus goes on and describes uh, these sheep in the next couple of verses. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Having said they are not sheep, he goes and explains what sheep are like in contrast to these unbelievers. And the first thing he says is, My sheep hear my voice. They are drawn to what Jesus has to say. They believe it to be truth, and they want to hear more. You know, I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons why this congregation here is growing. It's because we focus on the words of Jesus, on the Scripture, the words about Him and the words from Him. And we make it our attempt to regularly explain, to let those govern what we do and what we say, how we conduct ourselves. And God's sheep are attracted to that. They want to understand. They want to hear it explained. They want to know what it says. I've got a uh, quote from Ray Steadman about the scriptures that goes along these lines. He says, It is the voice of Jesus. It is his insight into life. His understanding of the secrets of existence. His solutions to the problems with which every one of us wrestle. His offer of deliverance from the inner bondage which we experience as we seek to live life and find ourselves continually trapped and enmeshed in wrong things, in hurt and anguish and pain. It is the word of Jesus that brings you here, the word declared in the scriptures and by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. So the first characteristic of a sheep is they, they uh, hear his voice. They long to hear the word of God. They long to know more. They want to, 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 to read, to study, to gather together, to share insights and to be taught. They hear his voice. And now the non-sheep, the non-sheep has very little use for the word of God. It makes no sense to them, and so it holds very little interest to them. Second thing Jesus says about them is that uh, I know them. He says, I know them. The shepherd knows each one of us, and he deals with each of us individually. We have the confidence of really being known. Jesus knows you. He knows the garbage that comes into your mind as you're laying there in your bed at night. He knows the things you do, the things you say. He knows your needs, your hurts, your desires, your fears. He knows everything about you. And He loves you. And He cares for you. And this is a great confidence that the shepherd knows us. We have that knowledge that, he, that we are an insider. We're part of His flock. We're part of the people that He really is committed to. We have that relationship. We know we belong to Him. And this may sound strange, but there have been times in my Christian life that I've doubted God's very existence. But I don't think there's ever been a time, even then, that I doubted that I belonged to Him. Romans 8 says that His Spirit 
bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. You know, the the non-sheep has no such assurance, has no such security, and so he can't bring himself to trust the shepherd. He doesn't know the shepherd's love, the shepherd's ownership and care. So he can't trust him. Third thing that he says is that his sheep follow him. My sheep follow me. That is, that they obey. It doesn't mean that we always respond instantaneously. Sometimes we refuse to face the truth. We throw out the facts. God has proved himself over and over. Yet as soon as our checkbook gets a little low, we start panicking. And even though the facts are that he's always taking care of us. Or um, sometimes when we are sure, we know deep down that God would have us say that something difficult to a, a friend or a family member. We do our absolute best to ignore that conviction, to avoid it, to stay away from it because it leads us to a conclusion we don't want to come to. Or people having trouble in their marriage. We know what God wants us to do. But we do our best to avoid that knowledge, to ignore it, to be willfully ignorant so that we can focus on our spouse and how they're the problem and how what they're doing is not right. And that Christian young person who who knows God does not want them to marry a non-Christian. And they've seen the pain in the lives of Christians who have and have suffered for it. Yet they close their eyes to the evidence. They ignore the facts and they press blindly on. Well, all of us, at one time or another, try to ignore the facts. We try to remain ignorant. We ignore the fact of God's acceptance, His forgiveness, His desire to have fellowship with us, the fulfillment that that can bring. We ignore all the facts and all the evidence. But the deep desire of our sheep's hearts is to obey. And ultimately, we yield to His skillful love. And we listen, we face the truth, and we obey. We follow, even though it may hurt. Again, the non-sheep has no desire to obey. And because they actually desire not to obey, their unbelief must be resilient. They cannot give it up. They've got to hold on to it. It's their only protection. Next thing uh, Jesus says is I give eternal life to them. He gives us life. Life as it should be. Life of joy and satisfaction, of peace. A life that's able to love other people and really love them. To give yourself up for them. Even people that don't treat us well. Even people that don't even like us. The life that He gives, gives us the ability to love them. Now the non-sheep cannot comprehend this type of life. A life that is is given freely from a forgiving and accepting Lord. A life that's not tied to uh, material wealth or physical health or, or circumstantial ease. They cannot quite understand this. In fact, having never received it, they can't quite believe that it even exists. It's a fake. It's, it's a front can't really be there. Then he says, and they shall never perish. This life never ends. It gets better and better. 
Sure, there are sometimes, again, sometimes long periods of time where we ignore the facts of God's acceptance and His love for us. Where we, uh, we don't feel the joy and the peace of that life. But the relationship with God through Christ is still there. And as we come through those dry times, our relationship is deepened and the life is all the stronger within us. And death cannot interrupt this life. In fact, death purely opens a new dimension of this life. One of my strongest memories of childhood is a story my mother um, would tell me fairly frequently about the uh, death of her brother, her brother Johnny. Johnny was uh, nine years old and he was, had a, a piece of weed in his mouth, a foxtail, and a friend slapped him on the back and he inhaled it and it uh, got lodged in his lungs. And back then without penicillin, they were really unable to do much about that and it got infected and, and it, very soon Johnny was on his deathbed. And they were in the hospital and uh, the whole family was gathered around his bed. And uh, with perfect confidence, her nine-year-old son said to my grandmother, he said, don't cry, Mommy. I'm going to be with Jesus. And my mom tells me that over and over because she was there and it just had such an impact on her. That confidence, that total assurance. Don't cry, Mommy. I'm going to be with Jesus. You know, how can the non-sheep know the power of this type of relationship? It's just beyond them. Finally, he says, they are perfectly protected. No one shall snatch them out of his hand, nor out of his father's hand. There's a lot uh, that can be said about these verses. But I'd like to focus on how they're used here in the context. And I think there's two things that they're doing here. First of all, Jesus is stressing the extreme value that He and His Father place on us. We are more precious to them than anything else that exists. They're not going to lose us even though the rest of creation burn. We are not going to be overwhelmed by the enemy. We are not going to drift away. He is not going to overlook us and accidentally drop us. We are too precious to Him. He values us too greatly. There's nothing more precious. When I was traveling this summer... I kept uh, my passport in my pocket and my hand on my passport because that thing was precious to me. I did not want to be without it. So I was always aware of where it was. No matter what I was doing, I knew where that was because it was precious. And the same is true of our value to the Father. We are secure. Now the second thing that's doing in this passage is realize that these guys he's talking to, these Jewish leaders... They fancied themselves as shepherds. And it was they who were trying to obstruct Jesus. It was they who were trying to snatch his sheep. And Jesus says, you just can't do it. He wasn't a bit afraid. He wasn't all nervous. Oh, no. People are going to listen to these guys. These guys are going to confuse everybody. Especially once I'm gone, these guys are going to take over. Oh, Jesus wasn't a bit afraid. He says, you can't do it. No one can Jesus concludes by saying, I and the Father are one. We do the same things 
And the reason that we do the same things is because we're the same. Again, these Jewish leaders were no dummies. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you were gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking him, seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. John says they were bringing stones over. Literally, they were carrying stones. Apparently, there were not a lot of rocks around on this porch. So they were going somewhere where they were and bring them over so they could stone them. And Jesus stops them. He says, hey, excuse me. I showed you a lot of works that clearly demonstrated who I was, really clearly demonstrated my father. Which one of these are you stoning me for? And they said, hey, we're not stoning you for your works. We're stoning you for your words. You make yourself out to be a god. Jesus said, I'm not making myself out to be anybody. I am who I am. Just look at the facts. Look at the evidence and draw your own conclusions. And they said, no, you're calling yourself God. You're calling yourself the Son of God. But Jesus knew that that was not really the problem. The problem was not his words. So he makes that clear. He says, listen, even in the Bible, God refers to normal, everyday human beings as gods and sons of the Most High. He's referring back to to Psalm 82, verse 6, where God's talking to some judges of Israel. And he says, you are God, sons of the Most High. And Jesus is saying, listen, you accept that. You've got to accept it, because the Scriptures can't be broken. They can't be wrong. So you've got no choice but to accept that. Then why do you have a problem when I use it of me? I, who am the unique, only begotten Son. I, who was sent from the Father, who was with the Father in heaven, and sent down to execute His will. Why would you have a problem if I use those very same words that would have worked for a, for a normal human being? Why should my words be a problem? It's not my words, it's my works. And he wants to make it clear to them that it's their, his works that they resent. It's his works that they hate him for. And the reason they hate him for his works is because his works are evidence that, of the unity between he and the Father. And they resent that evidence because it leads to a conclusion they cannot accept, they will not accept. And so they hate him for that evidence. You know, incidentally, that's one of the reasons why some people will hate us. We are a work of the Father through Christ. And our lives are evidence of our Lord's claim to be in control. Our lives are evidence of his lordship. And because of that, some people are going to hate us because they resent 
that evidence. They resent evidence that contradicts their conclusion that man is, is autonomous, that man should run his own life. So they'll resent us. Now Jesus, being full of patience and long-suffering, just like his father, makes one last appeal to them. He says, listen, look at the facts. Sure, you don't believe me. That's fine. Don't believe me, my words, but look at my works. If they confirm who I say I am, then believe. If they don't, get rid of me. That's fine. But look at the facts. Don't just take my word for it. This is Jesus' last appeal to this group of people. After this, he just leaves them to their unbelief. If you are not a believer, let me uh, encourage you to make this a challenge to you as well. To look at the evidence. Look at his works. Look at his works in Scripture. Do they demonstrate the character of the Father? His personality, his compassion, his kindness, his love? Do they demonstrate God's power? His power over, over men, his power over demons, his power over nature and matter. Look at his works in the world today. You know, the church of Jesus Christ is advancing on every front. There are now no nations in this world where there are not believers. And even in countries where there has been a, a, a coordinated effort to exterminate the gospel. Man has done everything he could to destroy it. It is still growing. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and, and more close to home. Look at the lives of people around you who are his sheep already. Is there something different about them? Not that they're perfect. But there's somebody working on them and in them. Perfecting them. Changing them giving them a desire to be loving, to grow, to be the kind of people people were intended to be. And if you can explain the evidence in any other way than that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the one to be followed, to be obeyed, if you can explain the evidence in any other way, reject Him. But if you can't, and if the evidence accredits Him, if it confirms who He is, well then be reasonable. Be rational. Accept the conclusion. Follow Him. Give your lives to Him. These Jews here pay no heed to this, this last appeal. They get angry. They refuse to listen. They refuse to pay attention and, and, and consider the evidence. They don't discuss it among themselves. They don't say, okay, well, let's, let's do that. Let's see. Now... Do his works confirm or do they deny? They just don't even think about it. They say, this is garbage. I'm not going to listen. And they get irrational again. So Jesus walks off. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. And many came to him and were saying, while John performed no signs, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You see, John ends by making a contrast. These sophisticated, educated, urban, cosmopolitan Jewish leaders, when it came to evaluating the evidence, were dumber than a doorpost. They just couldn't see it. They couldn't do it because they were unwilling to be objective and to consider the evidence. Well, these uneducated country folk on the other side of the Jordan, out in nowhere, they just considered the evidence. They said, well, this is what John said. 
This is Jesus' works. Makes sense to me. He must be who he says he is. So I believe. And they believed in him. They were simple and straightforward and honest. The evidence is there. If you need more evidence, let me recommend a book called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Morrison set out to dispel traditional Christian myths about the most convincing piece of evidence, the resurrection. And in the midst of doing his best to disprove it, he became convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And when he was forced to that conclusion, he had no choice but to follow Jesus. And so this book is a result of that inquiry. The evidence is there. It's available. There's also several books by Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or More Evidence. Or there's books by C.S. Lewis. The evidence is available if you need more evidence. But probably you've got all the evidence you need right now. Just look at it. And look at it honestly. Willing to become a sheep of the loving shepherd if it comes out that he is who he says he is. I'd like to just take a minute of quiet for those of you who are not yet believers to consider what's keeping you out. For those of you who are believers to also consider are there things, are there facts that I'm refusing to face, that I am not looking at. Maybe facts about God's love for me and acceptance, that there's no reason I should feel distant from Him. Maybe facts about uh, that thing in your life that doesn't please Him, and you know it, but you've been avoiding thinking about it, looking at it, paying any attention to it. You've just been trying to ignore it. Or facts about uh, just his, his plans for your future, or facts about a relationship that you know He wants you to restore to work on. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is. But let's be people who face facts. Let's just take a minute of quiet and then I'll close in prayer. Lord, I just confess that I so frequently try to be willfully ignorant. I try to avoid what I know you want because I don't face the fact that your plan is good because you are good. I don't face the fact that there's life and fulfillment in in obeying you. And I don't want to face these things because I don't want to give them up. Lord, I ask that you, through your Spirit, give me the power to face truth, to respond to you, to obey. pray that for each one here, that we would cease to reject the truth just because we don't want to face the implications. We don't want to face the demands that might make on our lives or the we don't want to give up things that are somehow in a perverse way precious to us that are really destroying us. Lord, we just lay those at your feet confessing that we cannot free ourselves. We need your truth. We need the power of your spirit to release us. Thank you for your word that opens our eyes to these things. Thank you for your spirit who puts his finger on these things. Now give us the strength to hold to you, to trust you to remove them, to cause us to respond in a way that's honoring to you, to cause us to enjoy our fellowship with you, the love you have for us, the fact that we belong to you. 
Lord, we just uh, praise you that this is the very reason that Christ came and died for us. And we accept his blood. We accept the commitment you've made to us. We pray in his name. Amen.